Praise the Lord. Amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, let's hold them up. I'm a child of God. Have in my hand the powerful Word of God. It can change lives, heal broken hearts, and save man's soul. And here's our prayer. Lord Jesus, today, would you speak to me? In Jesus' name. Amen. Give a high five, pound your neighbor, encourage them. All right. And I want you to look at your neighbor on each side and say this to them. God's not finished with me yet. Do that right quick. You'll know why I mean that, why I want you to do that in just a little bit. Since 1986, Father Greg Boyle, or more better known by his nickname, G-Dog, has been engaging the gangs of East Los Angeles with the gospel. Every day, he wades into that dangerous territory, connecting with young men and women who already have a long arrest and prison record. He shares the good news of Jesus with them, and he calls them to break with the wicked life that they have known and to trust Christ for salvation. The message is simple and it's real. He says to them, G-Dog says to them, you can have a future or a funeral. Jesus will forgive your sins, wash your past clean in the eyes of God, and give you a hope and a future. And to this date, this ministry has seen members in the thousands leave the pseudo-family life of gangs coming into the real family life of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Can you say amen? amen. It's not because of G-Dog. And it's not because he's watered down the gospel. In fact, he makes it very plain that Jesus is calling them to radically break all the destructive, self-inducing ties to their former life. And over 1,500 ex-gang members have trusted Christ, taking steps in a new direction with the guidance and help of Father Greg. They've come to learn a new language, buy new clothes, and learn how to make an honest day's wage. And it sounds like what we have been studying here in our series for several weeks out of Ephesians 4. The Bible says a true Christian will undergo metamorphosis. A change of nature that renovates the core values and imprints Christ's character on your inner life, on your inner world, on your inner self. It's a change from the inside out. This speed of internal overhaul, often called sanctification, varies from person to person, but certainly is rock solid. Spirit Wrought change is so fundamental, so axiomatic to Christianity that it is expected, even commanded, in the New Testament. What's more, change that radical on the inside inevitably shows itself in your behavior on the outside. There's a kind of system interface between my inner world and my chosen actions, so much so that the Bible tells us that when Judgment Day comes and I stand before God, he will look 
to my outward behavior as the determining factor in my eternal destiny. Romans 2 and verse 6 says this, that God will render to each one according to his works. So when you stand before God, he's going to take a look at what you've been doing. Some weeks ago, one of our members I mentioned last week had come to me and said, you know, I talked about the scales, the balancing of the scales. Jesus gets on one side and then we get on the other and we try to balance the scales. When it comes to salvation, and the person told me, you know, we can't do that. I said, you know what? You're exactly right. After I left our conversation, God laid on my heart to say, you know, clarify what you meant. You're right. We, cannot do, we can do nothing to balance the scale. Jesus is alone on the scale. But what I was trying to say and what I hope to convey is when, we say, when I say put ourselves on the other side to see if we can balance the scale, what is it that Jesus' life that we've accepted, that we have said we're buying into, what parts of his life are being so evident in our life that people, when they see Jesus, they see us? Now you're with me? What do they see? Do they see Jesus? Or do they see you and what you're all about? They need to see who? Jesus. That's what I'm talking about. But when it comes to salvation, you're exactly right. We can do nothing to balance that scale. You can work all you want to work and claim all you want to claim. But you see, out of an attitude of gratitude, I then want to respond to the great gift of salvation that was given to me. Hallelujah. That's right. It's true. And on Judgment Day, God's going to take a look. The evidence that we are truly born again is demonstrated in the most obvious and irrefutable ways. What He did and what we did and what we didn't do. Why is that? Why would God look at that, those outward deeds to see about what's going on? It's because those deeds that we perform, those actions that we demonstrate, they are an infallible sign of what's inside. I said last week, I believe this church in many ways has become complacent. We've become satisfied. We've become okay. God never intended for this church to not grow. He intends for this church to grow. Not only spiritually, but numerically. What is our vision statement? We have it on the wall. Would all of you read that vision statement for me? And where is it found? See, our vision statement is not based on what we say, but on what God says. Jesus said in this passage, I come to seek and save the lost. If that is our vision, then we cannot stay the same. We must bring other people to the Lord. Now, do you bring them to hear the fabulous preaching every Sunday? Absolutely. I know that's why you bring them. Cindy said, does it bother you that they want you to sing more than preach? <laughs> no. I'm just glad somebody asked me to do something. Is it because you bring them because we have such powerfully spirit-filled and led elders at our church? Some of you are going, uh, who are they? 
Oh, I know, you come because of our fabulous Sunday school program and teaching that we have here at the church. You come because of the beautiful... I'll just let you fill in the blank. If we come to church for any reason other than to encounter Christ at the cross and to hear the word of God proclaimed, then we're here for the wrong reason. And so you're going to get both of those every time you come here. Russell will bring it sometimes in a much more enthusiastic approach than your pastor does. But then I'm not 26 anymore. There was a time when I used to preach like him, ass ending. And there was times when she would never even sit and listen to me preach when I was that age. I used to say some incredibly silly things. Brother Jack and Arlene will know. They remember when I was much younger. Oh, and yet they come every week and are such encouragers to me. You'll never know what it means to me to have Jack and Arlene Franklin here at our church. And you have grown to love them like I do. Every time you see, he, he, he's, he's one of those sappy guys. You say, Jack, how are you doing? Never, oh, just terrific. Or some word he made up called terrifical. He'll say, I'm terrifical. I'm going, okay. And I have to go to the dictionary and look up terrifical. Always got a smile. Always got a kind word to say. Those are the people you want to be around. Amen. Hallelujah. I love our church because you're filled like that. That's what I love about this church is that you love people. Jesus told a bunch of spiritual posers. You know what a poser is, don't you, young people? Spiritual posers that a tree is known by its fruit. A tree is known by its fruit. He added, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks in Matthew 12. I can fake my true identity for a while, but in time I will leak out what is really inside. And a guy... Is a deacon in the church. He let out a, a string of cuss words and he said, Oh, pardon my French. To which I threw up my hands and I said, Glory, hallelujah. He said, What's that? I said, A miracle happened. He said, A miracle. I said, A miracle happened. He said, How's that? I said, I don't know French. And I understood every word you said. Oh, there's an entire book in the New Testament built on the premise that if you are a true believer in Christ, it shows up in your behavior. Jeff, did she put these 1 John passages in the outline? Okay. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, we see this. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. That's the norm of being a Christian, is you've got to follow God. If you want to say you are, if you are, be one. I can say I'm the greatest football player that's ever come down the pike. And you could sit there and go, I'll bet in his day he was probably pretty good. Yeah, I was pretty good. I'll just, not, I'll just break my arm, pat myself on the back. That's why my brother used to do this to my shoulder every day when I come home from practice. And I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I thought that was dirt, but it looks like it might be the bruise where you've been carrying your head around. <laughs> yeah. 
How about 1 John 2, 5-6? through 6? By this we know, we may know that we are of Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. So you need to walk in Jesus. If you're going to claim to be a Christian, you need to walk in the way Jesus walked. And Jesus never held the message of salvation back from anybody. But what do we do? Well, I don't really know how to present that, preacher. I don't really know the right words. What if they ask me a question and I'm embarrassed? Hey, the good news is you're asking a question. There is nothing wrong with somebody asking you a question you don't know the answer to say, I don't know, but I love that question. I'm going to find out and I'll get back with you. Parents, when your kids come and ask you a question you don't know the answer, what do you tell them? I know what you tell them. Well, it doesn't matter. Just go on, leave. That's all right. That's all right. No, no, no. I'm the parent. You do what I tell you to do. Oh, you get mean and ugly and say, because you're so stupid. You don't know. If a kid asks you a question, you don't know the answer. Parent, have enough guts and not, and not let pride take over. Just say, golly, that is a fabulous question. I tell you what, I'm going to get back with you as soon as I, I, need to, I need to research that a little bit and I'll get back with you. But see, no, no, we, 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 put on the, we put on the I'm bigger than you, I'm the parent, I'm going to knock you out if you don't hush. Attitude. That's what parents do. Kid will ask you a question. Answer them. If you don't know it, say, I don't know, but I'm going to research that and I'll get back with you. Well, that'll throw them for a loop right there. You actually admitted that you don't know something? Because, see, parents put on a face like we know everything. And then when a the kid asks us a question that we don't know the answer, we get upset. We want to hurt the child. child didn't do anything to us. They just asked a question we didn't know the answer. So just admit you don't know the answer. Throw it back at them. Say, what do you, what, what's, the, what's the answer you give? Let's just see how smart they really are. Now get ready because they might give you the answer. Uh-uh. Now what? Well, better get out of the funny pages and start working, huh? <laughs> yeah. So when people look at us, do they see in Christ in us to where the, the, the balance would balance, the scales would balance? Because when they see Jesus, they see us? Because of the life we're living, because of what He's done for us? Oof. 1 John 2, 2.15, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 3, 9 and 10, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By, the, by, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Cindy got on to me yesterday as we took Misty and Kelsey back to Missouri. After spending a week with them, I loved it. I have my granddaughter around for a week. She's getting to the age now where seven months where she's grinning at you and she recognizes you and she, she eats and she poops and she sleeps and it's great. And then she grins at you all the time. I love it. I'll say, what are you doing, Kelsey? And then she'll, she'll sing to me. So I lay down there and sing with her. We had a great time. Then they had to leave. Then they had to leave. But you know what? I want to be able to be real in her life. I want to practice righteousness. And I want her to see righteousness practiced in me. I tell you, I'm struggling. Maybe you're struggling. You might even ask the question, so what's wrong with me, Pastor? I know who I have believed and I'm persuaded and convinced 
able to guard what I've entrusted to him against this day, but I, I fail so much. What's wrong with me, Pastor? If I'm supposed to be a butterfly or something soaring above sin, why am I still crawling? Well, this morning I want to give you four important principles for change. From Ephesians 4, we're going to pick it up at verse 17. And the first principle is this. Keep your eye on the target. Christ-likeness. Growing up, played a lot of sports, and almost all of them had the motto, keep your eye on the ball. If you're up at the plate, pitcher throws a curveball, you swing and miss, coach yells at you, keep your eye on the ball! I was a sucker for a high fastball about right here. Because I always envision that ball leaving the park. There's only one time that it actually left the park. The rest of the time, man, I was under it by that far. Swinging as hard, almost throwing myself down, swinging so hard. Because that ball was coming, I was going, yeah, 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 yeah. Then I, then I met a pitcher that knew how to throw that, what is that, sinker? Like that. I was way above that ball. <laughs> Every time, what do they yell? Keep it out of Mama's in the stand. Baby, out of Football. I was a nose guard. The ball didn't come to nose guards. They ran a screen pass. The ball hit me right in the face mask. <laughs> he threw it. I was behind the player. The quarterback wasn't paying attention because I was so little, so, so short. Wasn't little, but short. And the ball hit me right in the face mask and fell to the ground. What did they yell from the stands? Keep your eye on the ball. I had my hands up like this. Boom. <laughs> you got to keep your eye on the ball. And I want to encourage you in Ephesians 4 to keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. Pick up with me in verse 17. Paul says and tells us what the target is. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. The Gentiles is a general word referring to pagans, to the lost world. Paul is saying your life must no longer resemble those who are still in their sin without God. And what do they look like? He picks it up again at verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. But that is not how you learned about the Messiah. Whoa. So by saying it that way, he is saying and describing how we're supposed to live and also how the world lives and how they're viewing us because Christians are getting divorced at the same rate the non-Christians are. We're involved in pornography just as much as they are. We're involved in Ill illegal issues just as much as they are. That is the world. But what, is our, what do we look like? What are those scales? What is our life being demonstrated in Him? Keep your eye on the target. Keep your eye on the target. Becoming like Christ is your calling. It's your purpose for breathing. It's your reason for living. It's Jesus. Everything else should be secondary. Principle number two. Cut all ties to your former life. Look at verse 20, uh, 21. You 
were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And that phrase, put off, describes a decisive moment, not a gradual decision. You are not in a position of negotiation with God. This is a verb that literally means to strip off, as you would, clothing that is filthy. And in this verse, what is removed and laid aside is that old self, that you, that you were before Christ saved you. Paul says, get rid of your old ways. Don't let those try to meet your needs. Don't let those old habits that marked your Christless days show who you are. Show that life, as I mentioned last week, of that change from the inside out. Let people, sh- be, it be obvious the changes in you. Throw away, throw away those magazines. Don't buy them anymore. Don't hang out with those people who keep you doing things you know are wrong. Those old ways are dead to you now, so get rid of every trace of it. People say, well, uh, it's hard to get rid of these friends. Nah. Nah, because when you get in a bind, you think they're going to be there? (laughs) They'll leave you in a New York minute. Mm -hmm. Or they'll squeal and say, you were the one that did did the deed, and you'll be in trouble. I had a brother like that. I used to always get him in trouble. Because I could always say, when mother would come, and being the baby boy... And there was, there, was, there was a cookie jar broke. It was Johnny's fault. Johnny was real big and fat, and that's my brother Johnny that, that preaches, you know him? He big and fat when he was a kid. And so it was real obvious, because I was real skinny when I was a kid. I caught up. But he, uh, he used to get in trouble all the time, because if cookie jar broke or whatever, I could always set him off. Johnny did it. And she'd believe it because he's big. I'm the one with the chocolate chips all over my, on my face. But you're the baby boy, so you get, what, you, you get out of all kinds of trouble, amen? But he used to get in trouble all the time. And then, of course, he would pray with me later. <laughs> but you've got to cut your ties with your former life. One of the greatest theologians in the history of Christianity is Augustine. And he was saved out of an immoral, debauched lifestyle. And before his conversion, he had a mistress named Claudia. Shortly after he found Christ, Claudia saw him on the street and in the city. Augustine, Augustine, she cried after her old lover. Augustine, he paid no heed. She would yell, Augustine, Augustine, it is Claudia. Then he would say, but it is no longer Augustine. It's no longer Augustine. And that's what Ephesians 4.22 means. 4.22 means. Can I tell you? What happened with those gang members who were rescued by Jesus in Los Angeles? Father Greg Boyle told them that the gang tattoos had to go. Gang tattoos linked them to a past that no longer defined who they are and can put them in serious danger on the streets. So G-Dog created a free service using local doctors to remove those tattoos, scrubbing their bodies of any last remaining marks of their rebel past. It was not an easy procedure. Many of these uh, street tough people say it feels like hot grease being 
poured on their skin. Yet the list of those waiting to go in a new direction grows longer every day. Each name representing another life that longs to be free and is willing to endure pain to seize it. Hey, it might cost you some pain to break ties with some old friends that are ruining your faith. It may bug you to stop doing some things that you used to do that provided temporary pleasure. You want to plug into the power that's real, power that lasts, change that is forever. And here's where you start. No more double life. No more straddling the fence. Make a decision right now to cut the ties that link you to the ways that are not Christ's ways. Principle number three, found in verse 23, be renewed in your mind. Verse 23 says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. It's present tense. It means an ongoing progressive shift is happening in the capacity of the mind to spiritually discern the options and decisions which we're faced with. Being renewed in the spirit of your mind means a new, never-before way of thinking is starting to take root in you. The spirit of your mind is something like the ability to sense the dirt hidden in an idea or opportunity before it attaches itself to my life. I was called to my attention this week of one of our young people's pictures on Facebook that had received an inappropriate response. So you have no control if someone's in your family network on Facebook and you've allowed them to be your friend, then you have no control over whether that person can respond to anything you post on there. And so there was a picture. The person innocently put it on there. This person responded, though, in a very un-nice way. So I, I called that attention to the young person this morning. They immediately took all that off of their Facebook. I was so proud of them for doing that. Because they said, you know, I didn't, I didn't even realize that that, I didn't mean to post that. I just kind of posted all of the pictures I had at that time, and that happened to be one of them. But what was intended for no harm could potentially become harm because one person's deviant mind thought so. You see how important it is? How we live, how we walk, how we act. Be renewed in your mind. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by, testing, by, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So when you fine-tune the mind, how does that relate? And how do those spiritual realities take place? In 2 Corinthians 3, 18, it offers a parallel value. It says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of, of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The same transformation language we read in Romans 12 and Ephesians 4, describing the progressive interchange degree by degree. It's the same as we see in the 2 Corinthians 3.18 passage. We need to pay careful attention to the wording of Scripture. And we all, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed, it says. 
We become what we constantly behold. If we give time to gazing intently at the television, then we adopt the ways and the words of what I see. If I look deeply into the glory of God, my mind will be reprogrammed so it takes on the mind of Christ. Our boys were real good about being able to quote clips and quips from movies. And so their mother said to them, for every time you quote one of those uh, movie scenes, you must give me a passage of Scripture. And they would look at her like, have you lost your mind? But she stayed on them. And pretty soon they would say, okay, 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 here's a verse. Okay, 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 let me go get a verse. Then they'd go get their Bible, bring it out and read us a verse of Scripture. They didn't memorize it, but hey, I'll take whatever I can get. Amen? Because I want to plant something good in there, besides telling me about all the scenes from Dumb and Dumber. Now that's a spiritually uplifting movie. Especially a little moped ride through the mountains. Praise God. Not that I've seen it. They forced me. They forced me. You would... Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Leroy Imes told of how the word worked in his life. Leroy Imes was a tremendous Christian writer and author, teacher. And as a new Christian, he was reading through Colossians 3.8, and here's what it said. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malice, behavior, slander, and dirty language. Leroy said, I tried to slide past it, but it kept bringing me back to the words, get rid of anger. Because I had a violent temper. Whenever it flared, I'd haul up and, and bash my fist into the nearest door. Even though I often bloodied my knuckles and once completely smashed a beautiful diamond and onyx ring my wife had given me, I couldn't stop. Yet here God's word said, get rid of anger. So I made a covenant with God, Leroy said. I promised him I was going to work on it. My first step was to memorize the verse and review it every day. I prayed and asked the Lord to bring this verse to mind whenever I might be tempted to lose my temper. I asked my wife to pray for me and remind me of this verse if she saw me uh, uh, failing in my promise to the Lord. So Colossians 3.8 became a part of my life and gradually removed that sin from me. Hallelujah. When I marinate my mind, isn't that a great word? When I marinate my mind in God's will and truth, I am inputting eternal truth. Keep your eye on the target. Cut ties with your pre-Christian past. Be renewed in your mind. And then the last principle, and I'll stop here, is put on a new you. Look at verse 24. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness, and holiness. In verse 22, we're urged to shed the old clothes of that former way of life. And now the Holy Spirit instructs us to put on something brand new. Created by God to fit you perfectly, but with a likeness to God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul put it this way in Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's Christ's life that should be obvious in how you do your job. Treat your spouse live out your singleness, or parent your children. How you respond, what you think, how you feel will find its reference point in your new relationship with Jesus. I love how Eugene Peterson's rendering of the message 
paraphrases these verses. Listen. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to me. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. And that means that you must not give, in, give sin a vote in the way that you conduct your lives. Don't give in to it. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourself wholeheartedly and full time into changing how you are. Remembering that you've been raised from the dead. That you've been bought with the blood of Jesus. That you're saved and you are ready for heaven. Because of what Jesus did for you. Amen. One day it's going to all be over. Melinda looked at me and she said, I, I, I don't want to go. I know where I'm going, but I don't want to go. We're all there, aren't we? We know where we're ready to go. But if I can linger a little longer, I'd just soon do that. And while we linger, we must show a work in progress. We must show a work evident in our lives. Ruth Bell Graham saw a sign along a strip of highway that she would like carved in her gravestone. It read, End of construction. Thank you for your patience. Isn't that a powerful statement? Because we all folks are still works in progress. But the great news is that Jesus loves you with an everlasting love. Our Heavenly Father sent Him to die on the cross for the sin that you and I could never get rid of, that you and I could never be forgiven of. And because of that death on the cross, you and I have hope. We have hope here, and we have hope forever. We're going to do something a little different for our invitation. I don't want you to stand. I want you to stay seated. I don't even want you to sing. Dick Hoyt is a dad who has a paralyzed son whose name is Rick. Rick wanted to run the triathlon. Well, Rick can't run anything. But Dick, his dad, said, I'll train Rick and we'll do it together. The words of this song and in the background will be the story of Dick and Rick Hoyt. It's called Team Hoyt. Watch this. See what God says to your heart. Who taught the sun where to stand in the morning? And who taught the ocean you can only come this far? And who showed the
To love us like you do. We're paralyzed through sin. We need a dad to push us. We need a dad to swim for us. We need a dad to run for us. I'm thankful Jesus that you are so much like the vision of what we saw in Dickhoit. I'm grateful, Father, that you made us whole. I'm so grateful, Father, that you love us. And Father, the invitation is never closed. The invitation today is as open as it's always been. And Father, if someone is being touched as we sing our closing song, the cross awaits them right here at the front. And so would you come? And would they come? And Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name.
Oh, that's a powerful video, isn't it? And that's how God thinks about each one of us. I'll guarantee you, when you're paralyzed in sin, he'll carry you all the way. I love that boy's face at the end of those arms. That was January 31st, 1970, 10.30 on Saturday morning for me. When I found Jesus, and I went to the water he gave at baptism, and I've never been the same since. Can you mark your day? If you can't, you better find it. You better find it. We're going to stand and sing our closing song, Look What the Lord Has Done. And boy, let's sing it like you've never sung it before, would you? And uh, God bless you for being here today. If you're visiting with us, we're so glad you came. Come again. And uh, remember, funeral service will be uh, Wednesday. And uh, here at the church at 10, keep that family in prayer. God bless you. Here we go. Fill us